And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Hugo Award-nominated editor Jim Minns on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're off again, and thanks, Jim, for joining us. It's been, it's been a while since we've talked, uh, but since we were on a jury together, what, five yeah, years yeah. ago now? Yeah, the the ju- World Fantasy Award judges judging scars always run deep. <laughs> uh, that's true, but but you know we're still pals, so it's okay. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Even I mean, Kelly I and I are still things. good, good pals despite our differences yeah. as jurists. Well, the thing is, no, we we well, I mean, we can talk at some it's, because Jonathan's been a jurist as well. It yeah. surprises me that most of the World Fantasy Award jurists that I've talked to over the years ended up sort of be getting along fine with their fellow jurors. There has not been uh, uh, there have not been a lot of cases where I've heard of where they were just you know enemies for life as a result of that. Um, but at any rate, before we start that, uh, the, um, the career you've had in publishing is an interesting and colorful and varied career. You're now with Bain Books. Uh, and I wonder if you could start off by telling us how you got started way back when. Yeah, well, that's always interesting to me because, of course, one of the questions people ask, oh, how do you get into publishing? And I only have the one answer, which is my story, and that is, of course, invent the time machine and go back to the University of Wisconsin (laughs) and be an English philosophy double major in 1993 because that's how I got into publishing. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm in publishing because of uh, two people, well, three people. John Klima, who Hugo Award winner for his wonderful fiction zine, which is now unfortunately gone, Electric Philosophy. Uh-huh. John's actually why I'm in publishing. Him and Plato, actually. <laughs> we had a, well, yeah. We had, a, we had an ancient philosophy class. What it was is John and I were both English philosophy double majors, and we both at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and we both had these same five classes at a campus of 42,000 students. Right. So the fifth time we saw each other that week, we just kind of chuckled. And then what ended up happening is uh, we were supposed to be meeting with one of our ancient philosophy professors uh, to talk about his take-home tests, which he called tutorials, where he would quiz you on the material he was going to lecture about. And the professor didn't make it, and John and I were sitting there waiting for him, and he was reading this fantasy novel, and he started telling me about the internship he was doing for a guy by the name of Jim Frankel. And next thing you know, he recruited me to intern for Jim. And then when I was graduating, uh, Jim's one paid assistant was leaving. And so I started working for Jim. So I was a freelancer of a freelancer because at that time, Jim was just a consulting editor for Tor Books. And and that meant we were doing other projects to pay the bills as well, including packaging anthologies like the Datlow Windling. At least it was still Datlow Windling back then, the year's best fantasy and horror and and then, of course, we also were agenting for some of the projects we didn't feel right were, were right for tour. And we even did print advertising for Carolyn Graff because that was a regular cash cow we could actually count on. So uh-huh. I got to see a lot of different chunks of the business that way. So, so, so back – sorry, go, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just like, so back then, uh, you're, you're working with, with Jim Frankel at tour in an assistant role. What kind of st- fiction were you interested in at that point in, in your career when you're just starting off as an editor? Well, mostly, I, I have to admit, uh, working for Jim was, an, it was a wonderful training ground, and it really taught me a lot of things because I was able to do a lot of deep dive into some of his old Blue Jay records. I was helping him get some of those old things settled up. Um, 
along with working on a lot of different projects. But, I mean, for me, my first love of the genre came from Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. I read Bullfinch's, oh. when I was, Bullfinch's mythology when I was in second grade, and the next thing I read was Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and I never looked back. And while I've always been a huge fan of epic heroic fantasy, my older brother Mark would, was constantly feeding me whatever his leftovers were, what books he was buying. He subscribed to F Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. He subscribed to Asimov's. And then, of course, uh, whatever books, novels he was buying. I, in terms of personal taste, looking at the different genres that we, we talk about, you know, epic rock fantasy is my first love. Um, and when I want to sit down and really lose myself, get that sense of wonder or, as Tolkien put it, you know, achieving second belief and, and really going for escapist fare, that'll where I'll, that's where I turn. But, but when it comes to short fiction, I've always appreciated science fiction a lot more. I feel like you can really convey ideas in short fiction that aren't maybe strong enough to carry a novel. Or, you know, I think novella length is perfect for science fiction. And then, of course, horror, I think, uh, one, has never been my major cup of tea, even though I <laughs> worked on the year's best fantasy in horror for four years. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's still one of those where, again, I think short fiction is is the best because, you know, all bets are off, and that's the strength for horror because, well, things don't often end well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're in Manhattan. You're working for Jim. You're getting a ah, no, no, no. Huh? I was in, I, I was actually in Madison, Wisconsin, working for Jim. It was one of those wow. interesting, interesting moments because um, a lot of people I was corresponding with. There was some email, but not not the kind of electronic life we have now. More of it on phone and fax. And I felt like I really knew these people. And I remember the first time. I met Delia Sherman. She had come into Madison for WISCON, and I went to one uh -huh. of her panels, and then I slowly followed the gaggle of people following her around. And I didn't want to interrupt because all I was really doing was just want to introduce myself because we'd been buying her short fiction for years, and I coordinated Jim's trip out to Delia and Ellen's wedding and stuff like that. I'd been on the phone with them, and, and she was kind of looking at me out of the corner of the eye like, okay, who's the stalker boy? And finally, <laughs> once it was just the two of us, I came up and introduced myself, and I had that weird relationship where I knew a lot of people was doing a lot of business, but I didn't. I only went into New York once a year for the annual CIFLA uh, Writers and Editors reception, and and then after about four years, uh, I went from Jim Frankel to David Hartwell. Was David at, at the New York offices? Was looking for an assistant. I was actually calling uh -huh. my former interns, and my wife said well, why aren't you applying for the job? And I said, well, what are you, nuts? Because I knew it wouldn't be a bump in money, and we were enjoying a very nice lifestyle in Madison, you know. Sure. Three-bedroom, tri-level townhouse for, you know, oh, yeah. under $600 a month. So luckily she was working in mortgage banking, so she could afford to help uh, cover oh. my my lovely hobby in publishing. <laughs> but you mentioned you'd gone to Wisconsin, so it sounds to me like you hadn't actually gone to a lot of conventions as a fan. No, you know, oddly enough, no. I never went to any SF conventions as a fan. Um, on the other hand, the first time I went to a convention was 1978. That was Gen Con. I actually have deep gaming roots that I don't really talk about much in publishing because I really haven't done a lot of tie-in stuff. But, you know, I, I was heavily involved in the gaming communities in the 80s, and I had friends who worked for TSR and, and all the rest, so... Uh, I actually did go to gaming conventions, but yeah, I never went to science fiction until I was actually a pro. Um, uh huh. Was was Wisconsin the first one? 
Absolutely. And the first WizCon I went to was actually um, in like early February on the one of the oh, uh, it was before Wisconsin became the convention it is now, which is a wonderful area convention with dozens and dozens of writers who come to it. But that actually started with Wisconsin 20. That's when they decided to go big. They moved it to Memorial Day weekend, moved it downtown, and they, they had Ursula Le Guin as the guest of honor, invited all the previous Tip Tree Award winners, invited the previous guests of honor, and they had a whole slew of people. And, I mean, I've been to... Uh, hundreds of conventions at this point and wiscon 20 still ranks right at the top as one of the all-time great cons i ever went to it was uh yeah i went to lots of the, really uh, smart programming and and seeing ursula mm-hmm. Gwyn do at her first drum circle at midnight on friday <laughs> night just cackling with glee it was a wonderful thing to be at <laughs> so bef- before you started working for david were you acquiring <clears throat> books um not for tour no um, there are things that Jim acquired based on my recommendation that he then took a look at, any number of things. Um, and actually, back in, I think it was 94, I sent uh, Jim Butcher his very first encouraging rejection letter uh, when, I was da- when, when I was Jim's assistant. He had sent kind of a, it was a bit of a cardboard D&D adventure fantasy, but clearly the guy could could was a decent storyteller, but he needed to do something more interesting. And I sent him a rather long editorial feedback in general about what I thought about his writing and what he was doing and what was interesting and what he could work on. And, well, I don't know if that advice helped, but obviously it's one of those that, you know, the big fish that got away. It wasn't, yeah. wasn't the Dresden Files. And he had, the, the, book that I, the book that I rejected is something that's never seen print, so I, I stand by the judgment. Yeah. So, okay, your, your wife persuades you to, to apply to work with David Hartwell, and you then go to Manhattan? Yep, absolutely. I had to move. And and what was the experience of working in the Flatiron with with David and Tom and everybody like? Oh, it was great. I have to admit, um, you know, the Flatiron building was a, a fascinating place to work. One, it's you know, while it may not be a name that's recognized worldwide, it's certainly you images recognized worldwide because of so many television commercials, TV shows, movies, oh, yeah. etc., have filmed with the Flatiron Building in the backdrop because it's a wonderful open space that in Manhattan there aren't a lot of those. <laughs> but well, you've got uh, that you know, ship kind of feeling of it. Yeah, it's... yeah, right. Plus you've got the open, you got the park nearby and the open space in front of the building. It's it's good for shoots. Uh, that being said, you know, obviously I went back in the back at the time I was working for Jim. He'd been in publishing for over twenty. He'd been editing for about 23, 24 years. And then I went to work for David Hartwell. I'd been editing for about 30 years. And I always was a little jealous because they grew up in a time where they could actually read pretty much all the science fiction that was being published. Where, yeah. Whereas I'll never catch up, never be able to catch up, you know? <laughs> the, the long tail means that there's, you know, a, you can reach an audience for almost any fiction, but it also means that you can't read it all. Where do you get to the point at tour that you can start acquiring stuff yourself? Uh, well, while I was working for David, I mean, I came in as an assistant editor, not an editorial assistant. So technically from day one, I could have acquired stuff. But, you know, when Tom Doherty, it was very nice. When I came in to do the interview, I mean, I'd met Tom four years before and I'd known him. Um, but when I came in to interview with David, he pulled me into that lovely office, his right at the point of the flat iron, and he said, Jim, you seem like a reasonably smart young man. Why in the world are you getting into publishing? (laughs) (laughs) 
and which I replied, because I, I love books, I love science fiction, and you know, it's and, and my wife works in banking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good. <laughs> and so you know, it, it's one of those things where, um, on the other hand, you know, Tom had you know David Hartwell and Patrick and Claire and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, a huge editorial staff and tons of consulting editors. Um, when it came to my acquisitions, he said to me point blank, he wanted me for my popcorn taste. He wanted commercial projects for me, and that was fine. I, I've got a very Catholic taste. Uh-huh. I'm very proud to have worked on Terry Goodkind's first four novels, and I'm very proud of you know, publishing Vellum, which I still think is one of the most brilliant first novels I've ever read. Forget genre. Oh, really? Of course, I did that at Del Rey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that at Del Rey, but but uh, the first thing I acquired for tour actually was Elizabeth Hayden, which you know she's done very well. Uh, you know she's had really? personal issues in her life that hasn't been able to read, but she was my first solo acquisition. Yeah, and uh, obviously those books have done quite well over the years. Well, what was the book? What was the first title? Uh, that one broke up on me. I couldn't hear you, Gary. Oh, I, I was saying, what was the first title of hers you acquired? Uh, Rhapsody. I, I bought her first novel, Rhapsody. The the uh, Rhapsody, okay. Uh, okay. Great. Rhapsody, the Rhapsody trilogy, the Symphony of Ages, and actually, I was yeah. you know when Martha Schmidt asked me about should she do YA books, I just laughed and said she was probably more prepared to write YA than she was adult because of her personal background. She worked in education publishing. Yeah, you know, and uh-huh. I'm pretty high up with what she was doing. I mean, kind of thing where they'd spend, you know, serious coin to discover what colors they should put on their textbooks because that's the kind of the publishing they did. Yeah. Did, where around here did you begin to feel like you were getting a hold of this whole game of editing novels and sort of turning them into something more when they get published? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I've been doing this for more than 20 years. And I'm still waiting for people to realize that we're all just making this up as we go along. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where uh, I'll say this. I mean, working with Jim Frankel was a great experience and a great training ground to learn broadly about a lot of different aspects of publishing since, you know, everything from marketing to promotion to publicity. And, of course, that continued when I was at Tor. Tom's firm believer that editors really – you know, stick their nose and everything and know what's going on. Um, and then working for David, there was a period there for a couple of years while I was his assistant where we were doing roughly 40 to 50 titles a year. Um, not all new, but we're talking, you know, hardcovers mm-hmm. and mass market reprints and trade paper, but that's still 40 books, 50 books a year, which, you know, publishing houses don't do that much. And uh, it was a heck of a training ground. I was, you know, my wife worked long hours in the city. I worked long hours in the city. We'd share the train rides home and lived, eat, and breathe the work. And, you know, working on David's books, heck, just keeping up with Lee Modest itself was enough of a training ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. writing 600,000 words a year. So, so how long were, were you with Tor at this, fight, this stage? Well, um, I mean, technically... I spent 13 years working on tour books is the easy answer because in the four years I worked for Jim, I wasn't really a tour employee. I was working a freelancer of a freelancer. But counting that, I worked a total of about 13 years. I started as Jim's assistant, then David's assistant, then became a full editor. And I was editing Nancy Kress, uh, Catherine Asaro, Elizabeth Hayden, 
Lawrence Wyvern's Dragon books, Dragon Warrior and those, the Obsidian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, gosh, I'm forgetting people. I apologize to everybody out oh. there, but it was quite a few years ago. Well, <laughs> I guess part of but the reason... I worked with yeah. a lot of folks over the years. Part of the reason I ask is I'm curious as to, first of all, what you felt the philosophy of Tor at the time was, and... Um, what you think maybe was most underst- misunderstood about Tor while you were working at it, working there? Oh, interesting. Um, well, I think that one of the great strengths about Tor, and still remains now, is you know Tom at the end of the hall, your publisher is a guy who loves books, loves genre. He grew up cut, you know, uh, in the trenches as a salesman, but he was a book lover right. first and foremost. He worked for Ian and Betty Ballantyne as a salesperson on the Ace Books when Tolkien got published in the United States, at least commercially successfully published in the United States. Yeah. And so having him down at the end of the hall meant that I could always, you know, go down there if I had a passion project that I really wanted to do and I could get the green light on it. Now, that being said, I you know, you don't abuse that. You pick it you pick and choose. I mean one of the the last two things I acquired for Tor was uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Shriek, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Stephen Erickson's uh, entire Malazan Book of the Fall in the ten book series. <laughs> kind of the end of the yang there of, of fantasy. <laughs> right. And that was, I mean, one of the strengths of working for Tor is that because they had such a broad list, you could acquire almost anything. Um, I think that also is a bit of a problem in that. Somebody says, "Oh, I love Tor books." Well, what do you, what do you love? I mean, Tor does everything. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's problem all the big publishers have in that you know, what is their list? What 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 are they known for? One of the things that I like about being at Bain is that we have a recognizable brand. You know what a Bain book's going to be? You know, action oriented, plot driven right. story with heroes you can for. We're not going to be doing dystopian futures. We aren't going to be you know, the a Bain book is an adventure, and it's going to be you know, with heroes you you want to root for, and you know we don't do the anti-hero stuff. Don't get me wrong; I've I've it's not that I don't love Elric, but it's when I went to Bain, it was kind of freeing in that I got back in touch with that inner twelve-year-old of mine, and just you know reading those fun books. Um, on the other hand, the real reason why I left Tor, and it was a hard decision because I loved working for Tom, I love working on Tor books, but. Having been there for 13, working on tour books for 13 years, I was still about number nine in the seniority pile. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, oh, sure. sitting around waiting for David Hartwell to die wasn't a real career plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, guess one and, of the, and, yeah. and Del Rey was offering me not just a, a terrific, you know, terrific bump in salary. Random House has always been ahead of the curve in pulling sal- yeah. industry salaries up. Uh, nice office with a nice view. I also yearned to go to, you know, where Ian and Betty Ballantyne created Ballantyne books and Del Rey books. And also they were doing more interesting literary stuff, China Mieville, Richard Morgan, yeah. and I wanted to do things like that. And, you know, Tom, you know, he, probably, he would have been fine with letting me do more pet projects, but it was more of the focus at Del Rey. It was me to do more interesting things like that. And and like I said, uh, you know, there was nothing was going to change in terms of the working at Taurus, great place to be, and the editors have been in place there for a long, long time. Well, I, I guess that, you know you, you touch on exactly something that had land behind my interest in talking to you about this stuff because when I first met you, you were working for Delray, you had just acquired I think Hal Duncan's Vellum, 
And you were talking a lot about this new up-and-coming guy, China Mieville, who nobody was paying any attention to right then. Um, It seems a long distance from the kind of work you publish now... But when you talk yeah. about it, it was more of a natural spectrum, I guess, more of a natural evolution for you. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this actually touches base on a, uh, uh, an interesting story. Uh, when I was working for Ballantyne Delray, Delray Books, um, one fateful mm-hmm. Friday afternoon in the summertime when, of course, publishers are doing summer hours, so I was, very, I was one of the few people still in the building, and my phone rings, and this British woman is on the other end of the line saying, so I was wondering if I could speak to someone about John Orman. And I'm just sitting there like, okay, we'll put you up to this. <laughs> no, no, really. I was wondering if I could speak to someone about John Norman. And I'm like, okay, was it Hartley? Well, who are you calling me about John Norman? And she pointed me in the direction of the BBC website. She was calling on behalf of BBC Radio because some... You know, the the torch and pitchfork crowd in Brighton or some British town, I forget what it was, said, there's something weird going on up there. And they sent the constable in and he kicked down the door and discovered, in fact, there was something weird going on. There was a bunch of adults who were adhering to a Gorian cult. Of course, it's consenting adults doing kinky sexual things. And the constable apologized and put the door back and left. (laughs) But, of course, the BBC wanted to talk to someone from Ballantyne because Ballantyne did the first three books, but and when when you know before John Norman refused to be edited, at which point you know Valentine the company with them, and uh, it was interesting because the guy wanted to talk about you know well, how yeah yeah well what happened was uh, the interviewer asked me about you know how I feel about you know this stuff coming up and I, and I said took a shot at the media the only time the mass media pays attention is if there's a Klingon in a kilt or some weird sex cult when in fact science fiction as a field represents a huge broad slice of anything and everything for any kind of editorial taste for any kind of reading taste from pulpy uh-huh. adventures to weird sex cults to brilliant literary works such as Vellum by Hal Duncan which I you know, I slipped in a plug for my author mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but it's but indeed that's what's great about this genre is and uh, you know like anything else there's a wide variety of things that can be found in there if you dig deeper and our field's been around long enough and has a mature enough audience that you can find people who are really into certain kinds of things and you can find enough of them. The, the, the beauty of ebooks and the long tail is while you may not sell as many of an individual title, you're able to feed more broadly to a wider audience. It just is a lot more books coming out now. No, you just made me think of something which is odd and off, slightly off topic, but John Norman was a academic philosopher as well, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He taught at Queen's College. Yeah, I forget too. Yeah, yeah, he taught at Queen's College. Yeah, philosophy, theology. So there's something with with, with you and Jim and and, and John Norman, there's something about ex-philosophy majors becoming science fiction (laughs) people in some bizarre way. I don't think anybody else Well, that's, you know, at at, at its heart, most people are into science fiction and the idea of what if. I mean, it's the... Yeah, it's a philosophy. You're you're absolutely, actually... Back in my days at Random House, I came out of an editorial meeting because we met every week from all the different imprints of Baby Random. This is back before the Baby Penguins or Random Penguins or whatever. This is just, it was like Random House, Villard, Ballantyne, Del Rey, 
One World, Modern Library, and a few others I'm forgetting, all mm-hmm. met every Tuesday morning for editorial meetings. And I went in there and pitched uh, this sexy succubus in the city, a sexy vampire story or, that I wanted to acquire. And, you know, nobody in that crowd really read that stuff. And I came out, and one of the other editors, guy who I really liked, smart, smart customer, I won't mention my name because the story is not that uh-huh. flattering. He came up to me and said, you know, you seem like such a reasonable, bright guy. Why do you want to work in a ghetto like ghetto like the genre fiction you work on? And I just mm. looked him square in the eye and said, well, you know, you come back to me in another four or 5,000 years when your literary forms had a chance to mature the way mine has. Because, you know, the first tournament <laughs> fantasy was Mission and Kidu, thank you very much. And we've been working right. on that genre ever since. And my my form of story has been around long before recorded word, whereas, you know, realistic prose fiction and popular memoirs have only been around for a few hundred years. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good response. Well, that, that, yeah. that sort of segues, though, because you're working at, at, at Ballantyne Del Rey, and you move to uh, to work for Bain, uh, move out into the, the Midwest. So so what, what's a nice guy like you working at a, you know... A, a genre like that for? Well, because I love this stuff. <laughs> because geeks have taken over the world. That's the beauty now. Uh, it's it, it's breathtaking how much we live in a science fiction world. Um, I'd love to be able to take more credit, but it's been just a question of the times. I mean, we're all carrying around our Star Trek communicators in our pockets. I still want to go back to flip phones, but my wife insists she's not giving up her <laughs> smartphone. Uh-huh. And And, you know, even point to things like The Matrix, which really was the first major popular success movie that really sold a really big concept SF idea to a broad audience, and they swallowed it. And once that happened, all bets were off. Now the idea that we're all just batteries for the the machine intelligence is old hat, and everybody gets it. Whereas, you know, you would have spouted that even in the 80s, and people would have been looking at you kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I I guess perhaps maybe to put it more seriously, though, Jim, I guess the way I should have put it is this. You're working for Ballantine Del Rey. You're buying a spectrum of stuff, fiction. But again, you've deliberately moved there to to publish more literary work. You're in Manhattan. Uh, You're moving to – you're you're getting to, like, senior editorial positions now. And then suddenly, from an external point of view, you move off to the Midwest to work for a very specific kind of an imprint. How did you first hear about the, the job, and how, what was your thinking when it came to making that move? Well, I'll be honest. Uh, Random House and I parted for irreconcilable differences. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bottom line is that the, uh, all throughout my career, whether I was working for Jim Frankel or worked for Tor, I like to stick my nose in everything. Uh, I just think it makes sense to do so. And at Random House, when you're running the biggest publisher in the world in English language for trade fiction, you know, I'm supposed to fit in an editor slot. So I, you know, I prefer to talk to people in production. I prefer to talk to the people in sub rights. I prefer to talk to the people in contracts and see what I can do to help make things work. Some people were fine with that, others weren't, and there was a real corporate structure there. I was, uh, there were a few things that uh, kind of led. In fact, that BBC interview where I actually managed to slip in a plug for a first-time novelist on BBC Radio, I actually got took into task the following week by head of publicity for talking to BBC without clearing it first. 
Yeah, and oh, that's really? just the kind of thing where yeah, yeah, and that kind of thing. I'm just. It, it was the first sign of the apocalypse that I knew I wasn't going to be there long. The other one was, you know, they started trying to tell me who I could be friends with, and at which point I knew this was going to be over soon. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, and so really it was a question of uh, parting ways with, with Random House. I, I love the people at Del Rey. I like working at Del Rey, but you can look at the editorial staff and the turnover they've had. They've had some terrific people that they've, you know, you could, let's just say this. You could put together a heck of a publishing house just by all the former Random House employees. <laughs> but Okay, but you, you must have – how did you hear about the job at Bain? And, and I guess perhaps more importantly um, or more interestingly, before you had your first day out in, in – it's Wisconsin you're in now, isn't it? No, actually, I'm originally from Wisconsin. Now I'm in North Carolina. North Carolina. So uh, but before you start working in North Carolina – what did yeah. you expect from Bain? What was your own view of Bain before you ever started working there? Well, I knew them for David Weber. I knew them for Dave Drake. I actually, uh, David Hartwell was publishing some of Dave Drake's fantasy novels, although oddly enough, I wasn't working on them as David's assistant. It's one of those weird situations where he had inherited the authors from a different, and, had a, and that other editor's assistant still worked on the books or something. I don't, I don't recall. On the other hand, I had to still occasionally chat with Dave when he'd call for uh, David Hartwell's office. Mm-hmm. I, so I was aware somewhat of what Bain was doing. But, yeah, Bain has been an outlier, I have to admit. No doubt about it. They're not of the New York publishing scene. And that's ironic considering, of course, that Jim Bain was the first editor-in-chief of Tor. Sure, yeah. Tom Doherty hired him to run Tor in 1980, and then in 82, SNS approached Jim Bain, asked him to start up an imprint for them, and his counteroffer was, no, 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 I'll start my own publishing house and you can distribute me. And for that, I'm immensely grateful because that means Simon & Schuster works for us. We don't work for Simon <laughs> & Schuster. But and the- that's a good relationship to have. Well, that's it, because basically for a start, Bain is basically an independent company that's owned by... Well, I guess the heirs of Jim Bain, Tom Doherty, yeah. and uh, somebody else, I think. Uh, yeah, it's, yes, correct. Yes, and Tony Weisskopf, our publisher. Yes, yes. okay. And so you... you, you and, and, and actually, there was a, you know, a kind of the Broadway angel of science fiction, Richard Gallen, who provided seed money to, you know, Carolyn Graff, to Tor, to Blue Jay Books, to Bain as well, um, although Richard Gallen passed a few years ago. But yeah, Richard Gallen, who... Is kind of an unknown hero to science fiction. Anyone in publishing, a lot of people know who he was. Uh, he was actually a guy who I believe has made his money in investment banking and then used that money to help fund good science fiction for decades. He was actually helped create a lot of that. But, yeah, but yes, we're a privately held corporation. We're wholly independent. We're distributed by Simon & Schuster, have been from day one. But, yes, uh, Bain Books is a wholly independent SF publisher. And back in the late 90s, Jim said, why in the world am I paying the ridiculous rents to be in New York when I could, you know, be somewhere else? And they decided to move down to North Carolina. They originally were, you know, New York-based. Right. So, so what, was, what was your initial role at, at Bain when you moved to Carolina? Um, well, first I started working for Bain. I didn't make the move right away. Part of it was the, um, they were looking for new office space, and until they had it, they weren't going to have an office for me anyway. And one of the roles they brought me in on, besides hiring me as a senior editor, they also brought me in to head head up the subsidiary rights. Um, And that, of course, is the translation rights, book club rights, audiobook rights. 
And it was easier for me to do that from my, you know, working out of my home in New Jersey, going into New York City, put together a heck of an interesting deal with Audible Books, which has been extremely profitable both for Bain and Audible, and I think was no small part in why Audible went huge for science fiction. Steve Felberg had the vision, and he and I did a, an interesting deal his first year to make sure we could get a lot of books out quickly. And it's been, you know, gangbusters for Audible since then. And then, you know, book clubs, meeting with Simon and Schuster, because, of course, there are distributors. We still do our sales meetings up there. And so it was good to be New York-based. So I still worked in my own home for the first uh, almost two years. And then I finally, they, we got office space. I had an office, and I came down to North Carolina then. Okay. What sort of... Uh, work were you initially doing? Were you acquiring books yourself? Were you working on existing projects? Yeah, it, well, it's interesting. Yeah, Bain, unlike any of my other stops, um, we don't really necessarily look as an author being assigned to a specific editor. We don't. We're not obsessed about. Gee, it's here's your annual profit PNL profitability and loss statement. Here are the books you acquired. Here are the authors you're working with. Here's how they perform. It's, okay, who's got time to edit this now? And we all kind of lend a hand at, and by all, I mean myself, Tony Weisskopf, and Tony Daniel pretty much handle all the editing for any original fiction. And in any given series, any given book, it could be any one of us. Um, in general, we try and stay with, you know, we're editing the certain series, uh, especially for the more complicated stuff. Uh, my publisher still does the yeoman's work as the editor. She's She was the executive editor of Bain, and Tony still does most of the editing for Weber and Flint's 1632 series and that because her continuity in the series and how long she's been there. But that being said, you know, I've worked some uh, David Weber spinoff series, uh, you know, the YA series is something that David and I cooked up. Those are the Stephanie Harrington books, mm -hmm. the Star Kingdom series, and other stuff like that. And, and you know, I just did David Cole's third novel with Bain, even though somebody else edited the first two. And it's yeah. kind of come full circle for me since I did the paperwork on David's first contract back in the early 90s working for Jim Frankel. And it just scares me how old well, those kids are that, now. <laughs> the authors I've talked to, and David is one of them, they seem to be very happy with the way Bain treats them. It seems to be a... From from their point of view, and I'm thinking of a couple of other people, well, Jody Lynn Nye, I think, is one of your writers, they're very happy that they know exactly how the books are going to be marketed and who's going to be reading them. Is that is that specific a market? What uh, what one of the ideas behind Bain is? Um, there's definitely uh, the idea of what you, when you pick up a Bain book, you know what it is. Content wise, look exactly. Wise. So it's very funny because when I first made the movie, you know, first joined Bain, far away the most common comment, comment from all my pals who didn't publish them, like, oh, you did do something about the covers? And I'm just like, no, not at all. Why would I change a brand that's easily <laughs> recognizable? And don't get me wrong, uh, I've, ex you know, you, you may have noticed by looking at Bain covers, we've since started using people like Todd Lockwood, John Picaccio, Sam Kennedy, Daniel Dos Santos, yeah. Mm -hmm. which hadn't been doing Bain covers before, but I, I'm not going to radically change what a David Weber on a Harrington book looks like. I'm not going to change what a John Ringo looks like. If you're offended by the big boobs and the big gun on the cover of a John Ringo novel, I've done you a favor because when you read that book, you're going to find plenty you don't like if that cover bugs you. Uh, truth in advertising. I'm, I got no mm -hmm. problem with putting an appropriate cover on a, co on a book, and 
I like working for a company that is pretty much shameless when it comes to the notion of we like covers that are right for the book, you know. And we've been mocked for our covers, and I find it hilarious because some of the things that have come out, you know, some of the covers people specifically spoofed, which we thought were hilarious. Um, On the other hand, Uh you know, I can think of two of those covers that actually went on to win Chesley Awards. So obviously the artists were doing it right, and the artists felt that they were award-worthy. On the other hand, I could see where, you know, with a certain sentiment, you don't you don't appreciate the scantily clad babes on a reprint of the classic Flandry novels, but that's what the books were. They were James Bond in space, yeah. and old school James Bond, not not modern Bond. Well, in fairness, not all vein covers have they're not the classic Earl Bergie Brass Bazaar covers. Quite no, not at all. Good. Absolutely, there's plenty of variety. Exactly, and and it's one of those things. Obviously, Bane because of a lot of our more vocal authors who are a very strong online presence tend to be from the more pro-libertarian, pro-gun side of things, they tend to get a lot of the press. But on the other hand, we also happen to be publishing Eric Flint, who you know ran on the socialist ticket in Birmingham, Alabama in the 70s. Yeah, I worked yeah. as a union organizer for 20 years. We're not afraid of people who have political messages as long as they're telling entertaining stories. I mean, all that matters to us is can you entertain? If you have a message, oh, that's fine. You can be in there. But it can't be you're climbing on top of the soapbox because that's not what we're looking it's for. Jonathan's point, that Jonathan has pointed out on this podcast before is that the, 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 the main topic in Lois McMaster Bujold is, is reproductive right. rights and reproductive processes and that sort of thing, which is, uh, right, absolutely. Which is not, a stere- it's not the stereotype of being books, and yet she has to be one of the most popular writers. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, it's not what people first think of as a Bane book, but I don't know why. We've been publishing Lois longer than we've been publishing David. You know, and it's one of those things where, I mean, editorially-wise, obviously you've probably noticed Bane has done a lot more fantasy since I've gotten there because, you know, I'm bringing that to the table for my personal taste. And it's not that Jim and Tony didn't do some fantasy. There was plenty of fantasy, but... You know, neither Tony Weisskopf nor Jim Bain were particularly huge fans of epic rock fantasy and things like that, whereas that's definitely more my wheelhouse. So it does end up coming back to editorial taste in some level as well. I guess something that I really wanted to touch on in this conversation, maybe this is the right time to talk about it, you've moved to Carolina, you've now been working for Bain for a handful of years, you've acquired a lot of books, you've spent a lot of time working with Tony and everybody down there. You're f- very familiar with uh, with Bain, with its imprint, with its philosophy, and everything else. What do you think is the greatest misunderstanding about it from an external perspective? Yeah, I definitely think that there's a misunderstanding that we have some kind of litmus test. And a lot of people mistake what our authors say on their own personal websites as if that's what Bain believes. And one of the things I keep trying to point out is, you know, we're not going to say to somebody, hey, you got to muzzle it. It's their life, and they can say what they need want to say. I, in some cases, I agree with them. In some cases, I disagree. But, you know, it's our job to stay out of it and let them live their lives. And if they write a good book, we publish it. Uh, I mean, it, it's been very interesting in the last few years uh, to hear some of the characterizations that's been thrown around. I've been caught up in, you know, being, in, being called a birther and anti-vaxxer, which is hilarious because... This is being written by people who probably weren't even alive when I was going door-to-door canvassing for toxic waste cleanup in the 1980s. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I've I've actually gotten off my butt and fought for progressive causes, and I've been to the Iowa caucuses for Democratic candidates. I highly recommend everyone check out the Iowa caucuses as a process at some point in their lives, just from a pure interesting <laughs> democ- democracy in action. Sure. But the point being that, you know, because I work for Bain, you know, this, these kind of slurs are being thrown around, and that's, you know, ridiculous. Well, well I guess, you know, I mean, the, the caricature of Bain, I mean, and, and I, I right out of the bat, total caricature, but the caricature of it is uh, old-style science fiction, more libertarian science fiction and fantasy, uh, military SF fantasy, tales of Iron Man told in wooden prose kind of a thing. But that's not actually what you publish, is it? No, not at all. Uh, Part of that is because we firmly do hold up Robert Heinlein as an example of what science fiction should be capable of. And we're not saying read you know, the cat who walked through walls are Friday. We're saying read Robert Heinlein. You know, he didn't have cardboard characters. He told strong story with strong characters, conveyed a lot of information in a very condensed form. And, I mean, uh, I think he is still one of the great writers of all time in terms of science fiction. And, you know, we, we staunchly believe that, but that doesn't mean... People, again, mistake message for content, and it's a question of what the writers are capable of delivering. And when we say we love Robert Heinlein, it isn't we love Robert Heinlein's political message put out in this book. We're saying we love Robert Heinlein's writing. We love the stories he wrote because of how he wrote them, the characters he created, the messages he was able to convey through his writing and his writing style. And, you know, that's been misrepresented many times. Mm-hmm. I, I guess another aspect of that, which has less to do with the actual writing than the attitude of the writers, and again, I'm going back to some friends I have who've written for Bain, and uh, the, they tend to think of themselves, in a sense, the way Heinlein did as a professional working writer. Uh, and I'm not going to mention any names because I don't want to misrepresent what they said. But they, right. the, the attitude is, is like, we know what the market is. We, we're doing our job. Uh, some of them write two or three or four novels a year. Uh, and it's almost the attitude that the professional pulp writers had in the 40s and 50s, where this is, this is a living, I'm not looking for awards, I'm not looking for literary recognition, I'm looking to reach my audience. Is that a fair description of some of your writers? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there are very few of our writers who are approaching it uh, looking to win awards, because what we are looking for are entertaining stories first. Um, the fact oh, yeah. that Lois can do so in such an amazing form with creating such unbelievably uh, wonderful characters is just the, you know, that's that's what makes Lois <laughs> such an amazing award-winning writer. I mean, she's one well, of yeah. almost as many Hugos as Heinlein. Let's hope, I'd love to see her catch him. But that being said, she's won exactly yeah, absolutely. Uh, she's won four for, for novel, and Heinlein's the only right. other one. Right, right. And it's one of those things where, yeah, when you're talking about authors who really are delivering good story. It's funny, I mean, Larry Correa, I'm going to go ahead and mention Larry's name. He'll forgive me for this, I'm sure, uh, because he's one who's, you know, forget, I'm not even talking about the sad puppies. I'm talking about when he basically went online and, you know, rejected what somebody was published saying in an essay somewhere, I don't even remember where, about how you should, you know, 
approach writing by delivering your 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 you want to you want to put message first. You want to get your point of view out there. You want to be stick to your guns in terms of uh, a, a principle, a higher principle, rather than telling an entertaining story and presenting your ideas within the framework of a good story. And Larry, of course, was firmly saying, you need to present the ideas in a good story. That It's got to be entertaining first. And he was being vilified for saying, oh, well, he's anti-this. And he's like, well, no, that's not what he said. He's saying, don't put out, it's not a question of having message fiction, it's a question of writing entertaining fiction that has a message. And I guess what, if you would talk to any SF editor, and I know them all, most of them are good friends, they would say, yes, uh-huh. I want entertaining story sure. with a message. I don't want message fiction. I'm not looking to write stuff that's on a soapbox. That's that's not, you know, you want to read that, you read the you know Time's Op-Ed page. And I enjoy reading the Time's Op-Ed page, but I don't want that for my fiction. Mm. Well, in, in fairness to the writers who are sometimes accused of writing message fiction, most of them aren't trying to do that either. I mean, we, we mentioned earlier, right. for example, we mentioned Fina Mieville, who is very conscientious yeah. and has said, my fiction is not my politics. He writes political essays. He has a point of right. view in his fiction. But his job is yep. to tell a good story, just like anybody else. Exactly. And that's why China's been successful and won so many awards, because he does a great job writing the fiction. He lets the story define what he wants to tell, rather than exactly. you know letting what he wants to tell define the story. I'm a huge China fan. We do seem to find ourselves at a time in the, the history of the field where we're almost slight, to some degree, could be said to be re, refighting the Campbell, Campbellian science fiction versus new wave discussion. You know, right. I mean, to, to, to reduce it to its simplest, we, we could almost said, yeah, said to, right. to, to or, that again. Or we could say go, reducing it down to the, you know, Wells versus Sure, Vern. sure, yes, absolutely. It's a new story. No, it's not. <laughs> well, you can do that. But, Here we are all over again. Yes. But. That's 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 what I love to remind people is that actually this is none of this is new. No, no substance not. versus style. You know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Latham's writing, but I'll never give the National Book Critics for giving Mudless Brooklyn the award for uh, National Book Critics Circle over like The Sparrow, which came out the same year. Yeah. Which you know, Mudless Brooklyn was wonderful writing, open any page, and just. Wonderful writing, but there wasn't that much substance to yeah, yeah. Whereas the Sparrow was all cake and no icing, and I tend to think of Mother's Brooklyn as something that was all icing and no cake. And I think that you know that argument about style versus substance is hardly re- restricted to science fiction. Not at all. Yeah. But what and, I was going to say was it's been going on for centuries. Yeah. But what <laughs> I was going to say was it seems like Bain has been yeah. placed by other people as. The standard bearer for one of those one side of that argument. Do you think that's fair? Um, well, it depends on what you're defining that argument as, and and of course, no, it's never fair to paint anyone, anybody who publishes multiple authors. You know, you can look at Tor, and if you would just pick a handful of certain writers, and you read up on what their beliefs are in their fiction, you'd get a, you know, if you put Orson Scott Card and John Wright and say that's what a Tor book is, and I read their political commentaries, you'd have a very different view of Tor than if you would, if you read sure. pretty much anybody 80, else. 80% else yeah, of their right, Absolutely. No, but, but that being said, we do have, you know, outspoken authors who've gone online and sure. uh, quite vociferously, and, you know, we're not afraid of authors who have a message. We, we do tend to publish. It's interesting. I, um, 
I, you know, I've been a social justice warrior before the term existed. I've been out there mar- hiking, marching in the protests. I've been out there going door to door canvassing. I've done it all. On the other hand, it's interesting because Bain, honestly, if you look across the spectrum of their authors, we're almost a perfect representation of America in that, yes, we have some of the people who are more pro-libertarian, we have some who are more pro-military, but we also have people on the left and plenty of centrists and almost everything in between, and we really are that slice of America where, you know, from everyone from John Ringo to... Eric Flint and Misty Lackey and, and plenty of mm-hmm. other people in the middle of the spectrum there and anyone in between, whereas not that many publishers have that broader range, yeah. to be honest what, with you. What, haven't does, been there what, does, what was Jim Bain himself like in terms of his attitude? What was his goal in setting this up? I mean, you must have had deals dealings with him directly. Um, well, you know, actually, I came into Bain after Jim had passed away. Kind of, the, you know, Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Because yep, that's why Tony brought me in was to bring you know because she needed more help editorially and and actually she hired me because you know I get to do all the boring trade shows now instead of <laughs> you know, yep. even though she's the publisher I tend to do BEA and ALA and the London Book Fair and all the rest which uh, you'd say oh you get to go to London yes I get to go to London and sit in a convention center and meet with people every half hour for three straight days <laughs> but. Uh, that being said, yeah, I, I, I actually never got to work much with Jim. And, you know, Jim was not afraid to offer up his opinions on issues either. Yeah. And he was never one to shy away from that. And, yeah. you know, I definitely think that that formed, you know, certain opinion of people. Sometimes Jim could rub people the wrong way. I'm sure I've got plenty of people up there who I've probably <laughs> rubbed the wrong way in this business for that long. And there's people you wish you could have done right by and you weren't in a position to do so. Sometimes, you know. That, that happens. It's the nature of publishing books that you really love that just don't get the support you want it to. What's but, yeah, in terms of working with Jim, I, I only met him briefly. I, I never actually worked for him. I came into the company over a year after his passing. And uh, it was funny yeah, because it was one of those things where I knew so much about him through Tom and just uh, I have a big respect yeah. for not getting to know the field. Um, I always thought that one of those times, you know, we'd meet up somewhere, his party, my party, and chat from, you know, to the wee hours in the morning, but that just never actually happened. One thing that we've spent a lot of time talking about here on the podcast just recently is the role of women in science fiction. And it seems to me that one thing that doesn't get given enough credit for and there's sort of like something that follows on from this, but that doesn't give credit for it, Bain, is that you actually publish far more women writers than you're given credit for. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that goes back to public perception because a lot of our more vocal writers are male. But yeah, absolutely. We're doing pretty much, you know, a lot of Mercedes lacking, you know, not her Valdemar stuff. Of course, that's all over at, at DAW. But... Yeah. Plenty of Mercedes Lackey, Jody Lynn Nye, Los Master Bujold, you know, Elizabeth Moon's career got launched by Bain. Um, we're bringing on a new writer uh, who's got a fantasy coming out, Sonia. Uh-oh. Sorry, Sonia, I forgot your last name. <laughs> um, and, you know, a whole slew of others. And, in fact, we're doing a uh, our own women of science fiction uh, anthology with Chris Christine Chris Rush, Rush. Yeah. actually. Is doing. Yeah, yeah, we got a... I forget what the working title is right now. And, of course, we got Esther Friesner's, you know, anthologies, Chicks and Chainmail series, which has been a lot of fun. And 
a whole slew of stuff. But yeah, absolutely, we have a, a wide cross section, just like anybody else. Yeah, we spent about an hour. And we should mention also that you mentioned earlier the Honor Harrington novels, which are uh, interesting, yeah. not in terms of women writers, but in terms of a strong, interesting woman character. Uh, who is yeah, a I would argue hero. that Honor Harrington. Yeah, I would say Honor Harrington might be the first true, you know, post-feminist series hero in science fiction. She's been at it for more than twenty years now. That's and, interesting to think. Yep, yeah, you know, people look at me funny because that's not where you know people would go. And you know, there are certain more traditional aspects to David's writing and, and worldview that come out occasionally. People want to dismiss that notion, but uh, I stand by it. He, he undoubtedly. You, you find me a better example, at least in terms of, yeah. you know, published a series of novels that have, you know, that have stood, stood up and continue to be published. I can think of certainly tons of examples of one-offs, but in terms of yeah. series heroin, sure. oh, look, find me one. Uh, and you published C.J. Cherry's best fantasy novel. Yeah, yeah. Back Thank in the you. day when you published Paladin, which was a phenomenal book. Yeah. yeah. One of the other things that I've noticed is that women editors don't seem to get enough credit in the field. I was spending some time talking to Gillian Redfern, who's the head of Golance these days, and was saying right. that, you know, if you look acro across the UK, pretty much now every major science fiction imprint there is run by a, a woman editor. Uh, if you look around North American publishing, it's far from uncommon to see them either, uh, to see either women running those imprints or being yeah. very, very senior in it. And, of course, Tony Weisskopf runs Bain. Why do you yeah. think it seems so difficult for people to to give credit to the fact that these that women are fundamentally running, managing, and molding and changing science fiction? It, you know, it just seems to be something that doesn't take hold as an idea for some reason. Well, I think it's interesting because those of us who've been in publishing realize that actually publishing there is a majority of women in publishing compared to men. There are more women in publishing than there are men in terms of working at publishing houses. And it's it's interesting you say that because it's not something that when you're in the industry you ever even really think about, at least I never have, in terms of professionals. Uh, although I'll say this, I felt that, uh, to go on the other side of that, it's funny because one of the more tried uh, truisms that you hear is that you know boys don't read, and my answer is well, boys read. It's just that there aren't that many books for boys being published. I mean, who do you think's buying up all the Halo novels, and who do you think put Harry Potter over the top? And it isn't a question of boys aren't aren't readers as opposed to publishing books that boys might like to read. And you know the fact of the matter is that most of the YA editors are women. Yeah, and you know. Things like the Borables, which I loved, and I recently reread that, and it's like, you know, huge body count of street urchins slaughtering were-rats <laughs> in the streets of London. And I could see, yeah, well, yeah, I could see why boys would love that, and and it's not a girl's read. And that's a you know, much bigger genre, uh, gender distinction than I think you can see in adult fiction, where it can be more subtle. Um Although you still look at the bestseller lists, and, you know, only in with a recent, you know, popularity of urban fantasy we finally seen you know women writers get the kind of recognition yeah. in terms of you know bestseller lists until that came along you know urban big fat urban or big fat epic heroic fantasy and even in science fiction and you know plenty of authors who were using their initials you know 
and you know, obviously going back to Andre Norton and James Tiptree, but C.J. Cherry. I mean, it isn't that old of a thing. No, but although I don't know if I've seen it as a perception of the publishing houses as much, although perhaps that you know you you might be right on that, but I I don't know if I've actually caught that perception. I, I don't know that I see it at, in the publishing houses. It's just when I talk to people about out you know out in, around the field, you know, whether it be readers, commentators, whatever else, when you talk to them about. Uh, well, things like gender balance in the field, and they talk about how there are more men being published than women and everything else. And they, they very much cast it as though science fiction and fantasy are run by men. When the actual right. publishing side of it really is overwhelmingly not the case. That's not the case. And, you know, right. there are a lot of very active, important women. I mean, obviously, Tony's one of them. Uh, but, you oh, know, absolutely. But whether you're also talking like you know, the recently retired Ginger Buchanan or whoever else, ma- major editors who seem to be invisible on a slightly more public level in the field. Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of that goes to um, a lot of the more powerful women in publishing, for especially on the American side, when you're talking about Jennifer Brell, Jennifer Hershey, you know, even Trisha Nawani at Delray or Ann Grohl, and... You know, well, Ginger, who retired, but still, you know, um, uh, uh, well, Ann Sorge is still there, and you're talking a lot of these people are working for major publishers, and they're more concerned with selling books. Yeah. And so they aren't necessarily as worried about working the convention circuit as much. Not that that isn't useful. No, I'm not. (laughs) But they're more concerned about the bottom line versus making sure they're getting to small regional cons. And it's a, there's nothing wrong with that approach. It is interesting. Um, you know, one of the fun things about coming to Bane is that, you know, Tony's a firm believer in making sure we are trying to support local and regional. And I really hadn't done much of the, too many conventions in the South in the past, you know, been based in Wisconsin, based in New York. And there's a whole section of fandom that I've gotten to know a lot better because I'm doing the circuits in an area of the country I hadn't really spent time in before. And I think that Tony is better known in fantasy circles probably than a lot of these other women are because she actually, you know, she was the chair of Deep South Con 50. She's been involved with running conventions as well as, of Um, course, being, you know, executive editor and now publisher of Bain. I mean, she's one of only two people to ever win the... Rebel, the Rubble, and uh, oh, and what's the third award for Southern fandom? There's one for help uh, as a fan helping fandom, as a pro helping fandom, and as a fan doing bad things to fandom. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> you know, the Rebel, the Rebel, and the and and so you know she's been active in circles that you know a lot of the publishing world are pretty unaware of. I you know I didn't really know that much about Bane because they made the move down to North Carolina in the 90s, and I just didn't see uh-huh. them at, at too many places. Worldcon's always such a busy place, and while Bain was always there, when I was working for tour, I was usually the one running the tour parties and things like that, and, you know, Worldcon be pretty spread out. I mean, we were just traveling in different circuits, and I think that when you talk about the women who are working at the major publishing houses, a lot of them don't do the convention circuits as much because they're busy taking care of business. And that's why they've in the positions they are. <laughs> well, we're nearly at the end of the hour, uh, but I did want to ask you sort of one last question. That is, 
Having been at Bain as long as you have been, and I assume you're intending to, to remain, what's what's exciting now? What are you looking forward to from Bain in the coming year? What sort of changes do you see, if any? Um, well, I'll tell you what. We've got a couple of new fantasy writers coming out next year that I'm very curious to see how they'll do. Sonia is one of them I mentioned earlier. Her book's coming out early next year. Although the one book that I'm really looking forward to reading is... Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge. It's John Ringo writing in, in Larry Correa's world. John is one of those authors who kind of works by inspiration. We'll ask him for months and months and months if he's making project making progress on his current project, and then we won't hear from him, and he'll suddenly surface and say, well, I wrote these three other books. <laughs> and in this case, he was going to write a short story for an anthology set in the Monster Hunter universe, and it just grew. And now he's got actually three different novels he's written for the Monster wow. Hunter universe. And and Larry's co-authoring, going over and making sure they're kosher with the universe. But uh, I have to admit, those are the ones I'm really looking forward to because I'm a huge fan of Larry's stuff. I really enjoyed his uh, Monster Hunter books, his Grimoire books, and you know the uh, Epic Rogue Fantasy we just launched. Larry's kind of our biggest grower and him and John teaming up I can't wait the two are all as thick as thieves whenever they're in a convention together uh huh cool okay then well uh, there's one thing I did want to say as well I was actually really interested that you chose to publish your own year's best uh, military SF and space opera anthology this year and that's something that I, yeah. that I hope will continue because one of the things in recent times that I think has been lacking is, so, uh, is a clear path to really recognize excellence in that side of science fiction. And that it seems to be Bain taking a real active interest in promoting that, pr- promoting the best in, if you like, older style of science fiction. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of the more recent version, uh, uh, hub about the, the sad puppy debate, which, you know, we're not going to get into, but, one of the things was, oh, why don't they go off and start their own thing? It's like, well, you know, a few years ago, actually, we started doing, well, one, we started talking about doing this anthology, which obviously took two years to get slotted and bring it out, where we're, and we're kind of having fun with it, because we're not only publishing the anthology, but then we're letting people vote for what they think is the best story in that anthology, and then we're giving that story an additional $500 cash award and a prize for it. So they'll get a plaque and a $500 check in addition to the reprint if they're voted best story in the anthology. Um, and on top of that, we also started the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award, which is uh, for an original short story. We're sponsoring it, co-sponsoring it with the uh, Writer's Symposium at Gen Con, which, again, most people don't think of Gen Con, this big gaming convention, as a destination yeah. for genre, but... Uh, Mark Tasson over there has built up a heck of a program with a bunch of writers, and he has like 1,600 people attending it. And, you know, the, a lot of these people who are gamers are also readers, and it's a segment of the mm-hmm. readership that we want to make sure we're reaching to because we think they'd like the kind of adventures we publish. Excellent. And so we've been having a lot of fun doing that as well. Excellent. Well, with that, we might wind up. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Uh, A pleasure. I'm glad we're finally able to get this coordinated. Glad to catch up, yeah. Sorry about that. And and it's like, you know what? As long as I had a voice, we're going to do it tonight because (laughs) I'm going to be gone 
you know, I've got a Raiders yeah. conference and other stuff. It's like either now or next year. Uh, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, thank you again, Jim. And Gary, as always, I'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you yep. next week on right. the Take Cruise care, guys. Podcast. Yes. Goodbye.